0: You may be seated let me pray for us this morning as we dive in holy god we thank you this morning that you are god that there's nothing outside of your knowledge your wisdom your insight and your control that all of the things that are swirling around us in our hearts and our homes and in our world we thank you that you are god And so today we ask that by your spirit and in your kindness, that you would reveal to us truth, truth that upholds us, truth that sustains us, truth that guides us. We can only accomplish that if you are present, if you are near, and if you are speaking. And so in spite of me, in spite of us, God, won't you do that? Won't you provide us with the truth we need to live our days faithfully unto you. We ask all this in the powerful the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Good morning, 7 Mile Road. My name is Peter. Uh, I get to serve as one of the pastors here on staff. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, would love to by the end of the day. Uh, we get to dive into Daniel 8 as we continue to press forward in this series of flourishing far from home, learning what it means to be an exile that is pressing forward amidst all the chaos that circles us. Uh, I, I have this comment ingrained in my mind. A week ago, we got to study Daniel 8 in my house church. And uh, halfway through the discussion, a good friend of ours looked at me and said, man, I'm really glad that I don't have to preach Daniel 8. <laughs> and everybody started laughing, kind of like you just did. And I laughed externally too. But, you know, inside when you're laughing externally, but on the inside you're kind of withering away. That, that was the moment for me. Um, but I have to tell you today, I am so excited There have been few moments in life where, like this week, I've been able to dive into a passage and feel like it is speaking directly to me and to our moment and just exactly what my heart needed to hear. And so with that being said, I hope alongside of me that you can come with great anticipation that God is speaking to us through his word. What I don't have for you is all of the answers, insights, but just want so badly for the word to speak to our current moment and the way that the scriptures can, I want to start off by uh, inviting you to think of a friend, maybe a family member, or maybe this is you, uh, but you are the ultra competitive type. So I uh, I have some friends of mine that I'll let them know, man. It's my goal for the next month. I want to I want to lose five pounds, and then I'll see them a month later, and it's like you look really great. What's happened? Like I've lost ten. Okay, cool, awesome. Uh, I'm still on number two, pound number two, but this is great. Or you tell them, like, I'm going to really get right physically. I'm going to start running every day. And then you see on social media a couple, of day, a couple of weeks or even months later, there they are inviting you to join, like, their marathon race. Like, come make a sign with my name on it. I'm going to run a marathon while you try to just run a couple of times a week. And, and so there, there's people in our lives who are just, like, besting you time and again. They're outdoing you because they're competitive. I want to show you a commercial that has been ingrained in my mind for uh, well over a decade that has influenced even how competitive I am. Like Anyway, let me show you this clip. For those of you uh, that maybe have never seen that commercial, that's, it's got to be 15 to 20 years old, but I remember watching it, I think as a middle schooler, and just enamored with the idea of anything anybody does, I'm going to be better than them. And that tune, like anything you can do, that would be ringing in my ears as I'm like running sprints on the basketball team and, and trying to outdo everybody around me. That level of, I can do anything better than you. What we're going to come to find in the passage this morning is that is the very nature of sin and evil, that it looks itself in the mirror time and again and says, anything you can do, I can do better. I want to show you, I'm gonna, I can one-up you. What we're going to come to find in Daniel 8 is that sin and evil, the stretch, that suffering that ensues in our world, the, this, the depth of pain, of sorrow, and of sadness, that sin and evil can continue to have in our landscape today, it's, it's that level of self-competitiveness. Anything you can do, I can do better. What we're going to learn today at the start is that sin's nature is to outdo itself evil loves to best its own records. And so in that reality, in that playing field, what is the exile's response? How can we be exiles who flourish far from home? And I'm convinced that our response must be to be faithfully present. To be faithfully present. That if the landscape is that sin is outdoing itself time and again, and suffering has a far reach each time, our role is to be faithfully present. And this is really helpful because last week in Daniel 7, we learned that, that we, if we are to have the, 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 the life of a flourishing exile, you have to elevate your perspective. That was the invitation last week. Elevate your perspective. See that God is working through all of time, and in the future, he will bring it all to completion. Daniel 8 helps us zone in, funnel down into recognizing, yes, we do need to have that level of perspective. What we also need is to be faithfully present here and now. So let's dive into that together. Look in your Bibles with me or up on the screen. Let's go to verse 1 of Daniel 8. In verse 1 it reads this, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward, northward, and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was one who could res- no, one, no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great." As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. All righty, quite the dream. What in the world do we do with that? What we're entering into now is uh, a narrowing of the scope for Daniel and for us. What we learned last week is that there is a particular and a very specific and purposeful language shift that happens from Daniel 7 to Daniel 8. We have been engrossed in Daniel's story, this narrative of him and his faithful friends who are living exilically in Babylon, and all the while this has been in the the language of the world, in Aramaic. We turn the page to Daniel chapter 8, and all of a sudden we're in the Hebrew language. We're in the language specific to God's people, and that is purposeful. Because before we had all the beasts representing the kingdoms. We had the lion, the leopard, the bear, the monster. And now we have two, the ram and the goat. Two animals that are more familiar to God's people. In their language. It's all getting narrowed in scope purposefully. Particularly and specifically. And we have just been read over us the passage of its interpretation. That all of a sudden an angel appears... Gabriel, the archangel, explains what all of this means. And so, without rehearsing what we learned last week, in short, the ram and the goat, they represent the kings or the kingdoms of the the Meadow Persian kingdom. That's the ram. And the goat with the conspicuous horn, that's Greece. That's explained to us in the passage. Some nuances of the two, right? The, the, The goat never touches the ground because, like a leopard in the previous chapter, it's moving at great speeds. The specificity of this chapter highlights again for us just how clear God is as to what is panning out in time. In the history of kingdoms and kings and empires, God knows exactly what is to unfold. The focus for us, the, the place that I want us to, to wrestle down into is, I think, what this chapter tries to highlight. Why does it narrow the scope? Why is Daniel given this grand vision a couple of years in the past of all of these beasts and all these kingdoms that span all over time, and now it's narrowed down for God's people here in this moment? It's because God is trying to help Daniel see that, that, yes, you can see it all and have elevated perspective, but God also loves to kind of Google Earth, zoom in all the way down to your present moment in time to give you an encouragement for today, guidance for today, and that's what he's doing for Daniel. So I want us to focus on the little horn. That comes up here in Daniel chapter 8. So look with me in verse 9. In verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It's a key phrase. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Now, if we were to fast forward to verse 23, we get the the interpretation. This is what that means. Verse 23, it reads this. And at the latter end of their kingdom... When the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken but by no human hand. So we pause here together and recognize that God gives Daniel a vision, and and he zooms in into one particular season, that there is going to be a king that comes from those four kings from the Greek empire. And so this Seleucid king, King Antiochus, that's what the little horn represents. That if, if you were to study the whole landscape of theologians and scholars, they, they are all generally convinced that this represents uh, around 175 BC, some hundreds of years after the vision is granted, that this is about Antiochus IV. Here is a king who comes up in this exact manner through that exact line of the vision, and he calls himself Antiochus Epiphanus, which means God manifest he walks around and, 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 and forces everybody to be convinced that he is God in the flesh. That here he is and, and no one can tell him what to do or what not to do. And so what is he, what is he convinced of trying to accomplish? As a tyrant, as an authoritarian, he's going to conquer more lands and he's going to unify all these people by demanding that they have the exact same culture and the exact same religion. He is attempting to eradicate anything that goes contrary to what he says is right and proper and appropriate. We have experienced rulers, kings, presidents like this that are convinced that their hold on power will come when they eradicate nuance and everybody thinks the same just like they do. And that's what Antiochus is after. So as you can imagine, this is why Daniel gets insight into his life, into his reign, in particular into his sinful pursuits, because he is after the glorious land he has a particular bent towards God's people. Why? Because the Jewish people, unlike most, live so nuanced. They're so faithful to their God, to the law, that that they can't possibly, like Daniel, submit to everything that that the Babylonians or the the Medo Persians or whoever is ruling or whoever is on the throne as a faithful person of God, you can't submit to everything that culture says you should do. And so he is hell-bent to destroy this people. Antiochus was a really bad man. He was just a bad dude. That's what my professor would always say. He's just a bad dude. Here's a list of things that he would do, particularly with eyes focused on the glorious land, with a heart particularly against God's people. He murdered tens of thousands in the matter of days. He sold 40,000 Jews into slavery. He defiled the Holy of Holies by walking right into it, assuming that he is God. He erected a shrine of Zeus on the temple grounds. He sacrificed a pig on the altar to mock the Jews. He outlawed circumcision, and he said that any baby found with uh, with circumcision would be immediately put to death. He banned and he burned every copy of the law of the Torah that he could find. And so as you can imagine, he... He is persecuting so heavily. He is riddled with hatred. And so this, this is the very nature of sin on display, is it not? That with the Babylonians throwing people into the fire, if they're not worshiping the, the, the large golden image, it's, it's way worse than that now. Sin is outdoing itself again. It is besting its own record again here, particularly against God's people. He wants to throw down the stars of heaven. That, that vivid imagery of Abraham's descendants are supposed to be as numerous as the stars and he is casting them down. He is so bent on denouncing the prince of princes, the prince of the host. That's, that's an image of God itself. He wants to be God. And so he wants to eradicate anybody that is following after God himself. This is a bad dude. Sin is outdoing itself through Antiochus IV. And it begs the question, why? Why is this happening? I don't know if you caught it. We get a little bit of insight in a couple of verses. Look with me in verse 12 and verse 23. Verse 12 reads this, And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression. Because of transgression. Verse 23, it reads this, and at the latter end of their kingdom when the transgressors have reached their limit a king of bold face will arise. So because of transgression or as verse 23 highlights when the transgressors have reached their limit what does that mean? How do we interpret that verse? Why is this evil happening? Why is this judgment on God's people taking place? It's because God is God is part of it. God is overseeing it. That's a weighty thing for us to reckon with. And if you can imagine Daniel, who has been trying to faithfully live as a person of God from the people of God, longing to go back home to Jerusalem, he gets this vision of his people particularly being persecuted. Pain and suffering is rampant for his people. Can you imagine how, how low his heart sinks into the pit of his stomach when he sees that vision and he gets its interpretation? And he recognizes that as the angel is interpreting for it, interpreting it for him, that it's because of our sin. That our sin has begotten this evil, this sinful ruler that is attacking us left and right. It was because of us. Then in Jeremiah 4, as it talks about this exilic period where God is pronouncing judgment over his people because of their wickedness, Jeremiah 4, verse 18 reads this, Your ways declares the Lord, and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. You see, the sad recognition for you and for me today is that a part of the sin outdoing itself again and again is because you have sinned and I have sinned that God's people consistently have been wicked and wayward toward their own God and that has introduced more sin and more evil and more wickedness and more pain and suffering into the system. That it's in our very heart that the bitterness and the doom, it affects us down to the core and that's what Daniel feels in this moment as God is pronouncing this judgment over his people, it strikes his very heart. It's the very place that he's longed to see restored, the sanctuary and the temple. It's the very people he longs to go back to and they're experiencing the most hardship in this vision you see it's not easy to swallow that pill but it's what the text says it helps us recognize that sin is so good at besting its own record and that sin is in you and that sin is in me that sin has historically been in the people of god and it begets more sin it continues to say i can do better than you again and again and that's why suffering has such a far reach That's why pain continues to promote itself all around us. It's disheartening because it strikes at the very heart. It's bitter to our souls. But that's not where the vision ends. It's not all that the vision says about why this is happening. Though evil oversteps itself, or I'm sorry, though evil continues to outdo itself, God has numbered its days. Did you catch it in the passage that, that though evil has its day, lots of days, in fact, God has numbered them? Look with me back in the text. Look with me in verse 14. And he said to me for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. I want us to pause and recognize together that uh, this verse has received lots of critical thinking. Lots of analysis of like, what, is, how does, what does this mean? How do we map this out for ourselves? Just quickly and briefly, 2300 evenings and mornings. Some theologians would say, ah, that's 2300 evenings and mornings, so that's got to divide that by two, so that's 1150 days, and that's roughly about the time that this was happening in Jerusalem when Antiochus was in reign. And that's fine and good. We can try to analyze the number. Or it means just 2300 evenings and mornings, like it says. We learn from the scriptures itself that in Genesis 1, that's the way that, that the ancient Hebrew mind would think about a day, evening and morning, day one, evening and morning, day two. And that's, that's exactly right around the amount that Antiochus was uh, persecuting in Jerusalem as he occupied it, roughly six and a half years. So, so however we want to analyze it, I think for us, if we're going to thoughtfully critique this text, interpret it and try to understand it, This type of literature requires that we think in the ways that God has consistently spoken, in themes, helping us kind of understand what he's doing in all of time. That 2,300 evenings and mornings is just, in my opinion, a number less than seven years. It's about six and a half years. Seven is the number for completion, Seven is a number where, where we can be sure that, that judgment will have its final say, that it will all be made right. And this is a judgment, this is a number time that is less than completion. And so though I have brothers and sisters, faithful people I listen to and long to learn from that are convinced that this is talking about a specific end time for you and for me, and 2300 has all of these clues and nuances for us, I'm convinced that this is talking about a particular set of time that is in our past. 2,300 evenings and mornings symbolizes to us that it's less than complete. There will be a time for you and for me where it's brought to a fullness, a completion of judgment. This judgment is not the end, the end of judgment over evil, of sin outdoing itself, besting its own records. That day is yet to come. So however you want to interpret that text, that, that is how I personally have, have been able to study it down the good news for you and for me is this. To the day, I mean to the day, God has numbered evil's days. To the exact hour, to the evening or to the morning, God has numbered its day. Antiochus will fall, and the text tells us, by no human hand. No human hand will do it because God will oversee it. God will make sure that evil does not stand forever. We learn in histories that Antiochus had like internal physical issues. Something with his bowels caused him severe pain and, and probably ultimately killed him. He also fell out of his own chariot and became incapacitated. And so both internally and externally, physically, by no other human hand, he he died. As if for God to say, no, no, it was me, it was my touch that affected his life. Because evil, though it has its day, those days are numbered, down to the evening, down to the morning. That's good news for you and for me. It's good news for you and for me because sin is running rampant still. Evil still has its days, does it not? If we were to do a quick reflection of biblical history, of human history, what started off as a sense of pride, I want to be like God so I will eat that apple to think like him, to know like him. I will distrust what he has told me to trust, his character. His character. Out of envy, out of malice, I will kill my brother because his sacrifice is better than mine. And you fast forward through biblical history and you get to our present day and age, genocide, the trafficking of humans left and right, war and atrocities therein. Like we're, we're experiencing sin on a grander scale with every year that passes, with every century that comes, comes and goes, because sin is so good at besting its own record. And so what in the world are we to do with that? What does an exile who is trying to flourish far from home do in the midst of that sort of reality? How are you and I supposed to live today? I'm convinced that our response is unpacked in a single verse in Daniel. That in a single verse we get a glimpse, not the full road map, but a glimpse into what is, what is the response of a flourishing exile who is far from home, when their reality is sin outdoing itself day by day. I'm convinced that that response is to be faithfully present. To be faithfully present. You see, this has struck close home for me. My my wife, a couple of days ago, asked me, what in the world is the Christian's appropriate response to what's happening in Ukraine? Like, what... What is a Christian supposed to say, think, pray, do? What what do we, how do we respond? And I didn't know what to say. And studying this text, I think we get a glimpse. I think we get a first step or two or three. We don't get the full roadmap. But I hope that this is helpful for you because I know that it's been helpful for me. Look in the text with me at Daniel 8, verse 27. Daniel 8, verse 27. The first part of it, part Part A, if you will, reads this. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. The first step to to be faithfully present, for that to be your response in a reality where sin is outdoing itself left and right. The first step is to be emotionally invested. To be emotionally invested. That Daniel here in this text, he is overcome. What that means is that he is spent. His tank is completely empty. All of his best energies have been expended. And so he's taken a whole week off. He's on on PTO. He can't go into work. he's He's laying home sick. He cannot do it. He is spent physically, emotionally, mentally. If we were to unpack that verse, I think us trusting what we know about Daniel to this point It's because Daniel has given his best energies to be so emotionally connected to the pain. He sees the vision of his people suffering, and he is heartbroken by it he finds his place where he goes three times a day and he probably has gone 30 times. That place on your carpet or on your rug where where there's indentions because your knees have been there so readily over the past handful of days. The stain on your pillow cover because it's been stained by your tears. You're staying up at night because you don't know what to say. You don't know how to feel, but it makes you so sorrowful even to the point of tears, night after night after night. You You are not sleeping well because of what's happening, because of the suffering that persists. That's the sort of person that Daniel is. He is so emotionally invested that he has to take sick days because he has sleepless nights over the pain, over the suffering. He is bought in emotionally. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, this is, uh, this is oftentimes not you and me. When, when my wife and I recently went through um, just a, a season of suffering, a season of sadness, where our son was in the Nikki for several weeks, some of the advice from people we love and we trust was stop being sad. Can you just get out of the house, like go on a date night, or or better yet, go watch a funny movie. Just laugh and, and don't think about it. And I appreciate the intention behind that recommendation. And yet what the invitation there is and that all of us oftentimes receive and even accept is just distract yourself. Just distract yourself. Watch something funny. Go do something fun and exciting. Distance yourself from the pain because it's, it's only going to lead to more sadness. And what can you really do with more sadness? What Daniel is invested in is that he wants to be so emotionally connected to the problem that it begins to develop something else in his heart and his mind and even in his actions. He knows that the first step to right wrongs, to see justice prevail over injustice, is that he needs to be proximate to the pain. It's one of my favorite quotes from Brian Stevenson, the author of Just Mercy, the starter of the Equal Justice Initiative. He says that you want to see justice actually bubble up in this world of suffering and of pain, get proximate enough to the pain that tears fall down your eyes, that you hear it, you feel it, you sense it. And the truth is that you and I hate to do that. We'd rather keep on laughing, we'd rather keep on distracting ourselves. So the invitation at the fir- at the front to be faithfully present in the midst of sin besting itself is you must be a person who is emotionally invested to get proximate to the pain. Step number two is, after you are emotionally invested, is to, ge- is to be convictionally dependable. To be convictionally dependable. Look back with me at verse 27, part B. After he took some days off, PTO time, it says, Then I rose and went about the king's business. So our man Daniel takes some sick days, and then on Monday morning he wakes up and he goes and he clocks in. What? You just went about your day, about the business of the king of the kingdom that you know will ultimately come to an end. You have that elevated perspective. You know that your people will suffer, and you go and you clock in on Monday morning? The invitation for you to be a faithfully present exile is for you to be so convicted down to your bones that you reflect and represent God everywhere you go. And you know what people need in this day and age? Is they need to know that there is a dependable God even amidst chaos. That there is someone who will still clock in, who will warm the bottles when you wake up Monday morning who will make breakfast for your roommates again Monday morning, who will go check in on those patients that nobody likes to check in on because they're kind of rude, And that goes, and you craft that spreadsheet that nobody might ever look at again. But you're convinced that you're going to go, you're going to do dependable work. Why? Because you are a reflection. You are a representative of a God who is dependable every time Monday morning rolls around. And so why does Daniel go back to the king's business as he wakes up on Monday morning? he wants to make sure that you and i that people who are living living exilically represent the god of dependability that's who daniel is that's how he is taking steps to be faithfully present and finally after being emotionally invested and convictionally dependable We come to find that the final step for Daniel anyway to get us down the road on being faithfully present exiles is to be thoughtfully aware. Thoughtfully aware. At the end of verse 27, look with me. After taking some sick days, after rising to go about the king's business on Monday morning, he says, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. You know what we don't get in Daniel 8? Uh, we don't get a Daniel who is um, raising his hand. I have to be very honest. Um, I don't know if I would be Daniel in Daniel 8. Right? Like you you are interacting with heavenly beings and God is granting you this vision. You're seeing all these things and you're kind of eavesdropping on two angels talking about how long this is going to last. And Daniel doesn't say a word. Uh, Tyler on our staff calls me the wordsmith of our staff. He, he's, it's a euphemism. He, he's trying to be nice because I'm like a ruthless editor. And so like any email we send out, I'm like, I'm going to tear it up and, and and do it all over. I'm going to like, I want to to, to to communicate something, to uh, believe something. I'm going to tear it apart, put it all back together. I need to know from top to bottom. I'm going to ask a thousand questions. That's the kind of the sort of person that I am. And that's why Tyler asked me to edit some things. A few things, not all the things. And... Um, so I know in Daniel's position, what I would have said is I would have gently raised my hand and said, uh, angels, do you want a second opinion? <laughs> like, uh, you, if you're busy, keep on keeping on, but, but um, I've got some thoughts. I think there are some better ways maybe to go about the ultimate end goal here. Like, Can we talk about this? Are you sure this is the right course of action? Hey God, if you can hear me, I know I heard your voice telling the angels what to do. Um, God, Father, Son, Spirit. I know you guys are like a divine board. Like I just want to intervene, just for a moment. Will you? You sure you don't want the wordsmiths edits here? Daniel doesn't say any of that, and it's because I think Daniel is very aware, keenly so, of who God is and who He is. God is unsearchable. Oftentimes His ways are unknowable to finite creatures because He is infinite. And we, if you have been in the church for some time, you understand this jargon. You, you've read the verses. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. His ways are beyond your ways. He is high and holy, and there are secret things that you will never know because He is God and it belongs to Him. And yet, when the moment happens, when sin, sadness, and immense suffering, when evil is outdoing itself, besting its own records, you and I, we demand answers. We shake our fists at God and say, why? How could you let this happen? And Daniel is here seeing it all unfold, emotionally wrought by it, undone by it, dependable on Monday morning through it, and he doesn't say a word because he is so thoughtfully aware of who God is and who he is. And I'm not saying you can't ask questions. I'm not saying God doesn't receive your your thoughtfulness. What I am saying is that you have to recognize and I have to recognize who God is and who we are, and there is, if there is one thing we cannot do, is it's demand answers to a holy God who is orchestrating all things and all people and all time and space. So for you and for me to be aware like Daniel, I think is the key. Aware of who God is and who we are, but also aware that we won't understand it all. It's actually an impossibility for a finite creature like you and me to understand infinite things. And can we just Can we just take a collective inhale and breathe that in? You will not understand at all. Kind of like I don't fully understand Daniel 8. He gets to the end of the vision. Gabriel speaks it into existence for him, interprets it all, and then he, God even told Gabriel, make the man understand. And by the end of the chapter, Daniel says, I don't understand. I don't get it. And I'm convinced that it's Daniel understands that there are some things that are just too marvelous for him too wonderful even for his brain, his mind, his life. And it's why I hope that you and I can long for, I mean long for, you can't wait till the day you get to see Jesus face to face and you get to spend the rest of eternity unpacking all the mystery of who he is. He is an ocean that is to be explored and you will never find the depths of it. I hope that Being so thoughtfully aware, like Daniel, of who God is and who you are that you can't wait to get to know all of God. This is the beginning steps. This is not the full roadmap. I'm not telling you that the crisis in Ukraine can be resolved because we're taking a few simple steps from one verse in Daniel 8. What I am saying is that I hope and I pray that these are some of just the simple early steps that we can collectively agree to take together. So this glimpse into faithful presence in one verse of Daniel it points us to a fuller picture a fuller picture of faithful presence in the midst of sin besting itself outdoing itself and we see that most pointedly at the cross of Calvary. If there was one moment in time in all of human history where sin looked itself in the mirror and says I don't know if I can do any better Like, this is this has got to be on the trophy case. Like, it's when Jesus was pinned to a tree. And you think about the moments leading up to that time in space. That on the night that Jesus was to be arrested, he he went alone. Well, he he went in seclusion with a few of his closest friends and he said, Pray with me because my soul is sorrowful even to death. And he cried, and he bled to the point of, like, we don't have the time, but to reflect on the Garden of Gethsemane to see the anguish of Jesus. He literally says that, that it was he was greatly distressed. He was overcome, kind of like Daniel was, because he knew the depths of pain. He knew what evil was about to do, and Jesus chose to be emotionally invested in that time. He's not going to excuse himself. He's going to pray it down. He's going to wrestle with God. He's going to find that spot in the ground where his knees will impress into it, where where the tears will fall to the ground. He's going to be invested in that way. What we come to find thereafter is that he is so dependable to, to follow through on what he prayed in that garden. Not my will, God, but will your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. The moment that he is kissed by Judas and betrayed in that way. The moment that he is... He is held before all of the the council, and the priests are mocking him and spitting on him, the point where he is being scourged and beaten. Every step that he takes as he carries that heavy cross, he is convinced that he wants to be dependable. He's convicted that he is representing who God is to the world, even by carrying a cross with each and every step. He is dependable. He is representing the God who is dependable. And it gets to the point in time where he we read it on the confession of sin. He gets onto that cross and there's a moment, there's something that takes shape where the sins of the world are all of a sudden laid onto Jesus. And it says in the scriptures that he became our sin. That the one who knew no sin became your sin. And he cries that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm convinced that he cries that cry because for the first time, and all of eternity, the Father turns his face away from the Son. A relationship that has been so seeped in love and affection and tenderness, the Father can't even look at the Son. Because he's become your sin and mine. And so he cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus in that moment is so keenly aware of what he's become. He cries that cry. And the beauty of the cross. The wonder of it is that sin did truly, in so many ways, it, it bested itself again. It outdid itself again. But what we know to be true about evil, in God's eyes, is that it's numbered. Its days are numbered. It overstepped in what it did to Jesus. There's a scene. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, where all of a sudden, in that moment where Jesus is breathes his last breath the camera zooms down to the pits of hell and there's Satan just screaming at the top of his lungs in anguish. Why? Because he knew in that moment that when he thought sin was at its peak, when evil could be unmatched on the cross of Christ, it secured his defeat. That it actually, it secured his defeat that Jesus would die so that you and I might not ever have to experience that judgment and that wrath, that evil's days would ultimately be numbered. You see, the beauty of the cross of Christ is that it is the sign, it is the symbol for us that evil's days are numbered. It oversteps itself. And Jesus' faithful presence in that moment and in every moment thereafter has secured victory for you and for me as he has secured defeat for evil and sin. And so the invitation for you and for me today is to follow him. It's not to follow Daniel. Daniel has a kind of an incomplete understanding of what's really going on. We get a verse of how he takes initial steps, but Jesus is the one, even unto death, rising victorious from the grave and is one day coming again to make all things new and all things right. He's the one that we can follow. So said, Maro, let's be a people who follow after his footsteps, even in a world that is wrought with sin outdoing itself. Amen? Let me pray for this. Jesus, we are amazed by you. And I pray that that would be the takeaway from today. That there was a moment in time where sin was at its peak, where evil had reached a pinnacle, and in piercing you up on a tree, God, it assumed that it was victorious, and yet you have have secured its defeat, and you have secured for us home with you. And so, God, I pray that no matter what evil we face, no matter suffering we go through, no matter what sin we see outdoing itself again and again and again, that we will be the sort of people that choose to be faithfully present now. Teach us what that means. We need your help, Holy Spirit. We cannot do it on our own. God, we love you and we thank you for what you mean to our lives. Help us see you more clearly today and help us wake up tomorrow morning with a renewed sense of purpose to be faithfully present in this day and time. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.